You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Hey, humanists, this is Nathan Gilmore. I want to tell you about an event that I'll be attending in Southern California, uh, January 19th through 21st. It is the Homebrew Christianity Theology Beer Camp. It's going to be a small event, limited number of tickets. Uh, so when you come, you'll be able to talk to podcasters like me, Jason Michelli from the Crackers and Grape Juice podcast, Trip Fuller from Homebrew Christianity, of course, a number of other shows that ought to be a lot of fun. There will be some keynote sort of speakers. Trip Fuller has promised that he's going to try to get them off of their usual talking points and onto some new material. At any rate, uh, theologybeercamp.com is the link for that. We'll post that on the christianhumanist.org website and promote it on the Facebook page. And I'd be glad to see some of you if you're going to be in uh, Southern California that last weekend of the Obama years, uh, just before we roll over into the Trump administration. Again, January 19th through 21st, theologybeercamp.com. I hope to see some of you there. In one of The Wire's many memorable scenes, the older and more seasoned Vinson has a caution for the young gangster Marlo Stanfield as he aspires to dominance in the Baltimore drug war. Prisons and graveyards are full of boys who wore the crown. Marlo quickly responds, the point is they wore it. It's my turn to wear it now. That's the shape of the despair that pervades that paragon of postmodern tragedy. And it presents a challenge to Christians. Do we have anything beyond wearing the crown, my turn to wear it, to which we can aspire? N.T. Wright has written a shelf of books taking up that late industrial gauntlet. And in his recent book, The Day the Revolution Began, he drives home the pervasive, eschatological, political, hopeful answer. And this is that answer. On a Friday evening in Roman-occupied Palestine, God put to rout the crowns and the thrones the forces and the principalities, and he commissioned us not to win any battle, but to show the world that it's already been won. He's here today to talk with us about that, and Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to have N.T. Wright back on the show. Thank you for joining us again, Tom. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Well, early in this book, The Day the Revolution Began, you present a brief history of atonement theology, starting in the medieval turn towards heaven, purgatory, and hell and then demonstrating that the Reformation and the 19th century revivalism are in some sense giving biblical answers to medieval questions. What goes wrong when our starting point comes not from the Bible's Roman-occupied Palestinian moment of composition, but from some other moment of reception? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think many Western Christians have never even realized that that there is a question there to be addressed, so it's helpful to have a chance to do that. I think if you look at uh, the Bible itself, you discover that again and again, the end game, if you like, is the remaking of creation. Whether you look at Isaiah or whether you look at Deuteronomy, whether particularly you look at uh, the end of Matthew's gospel or the end of the book of Revelation or that great climax of Pauline theology in Romans 8, what we're talking about is not getting rid of the present creation and going somewhere else to a non-spatio-temporal heaven, for instance, but actually the renewal of creation itself. It all, it all goes back to Genesis 1 with God looking at all that he'd made and saying it's very good. God intends to remake this creation. And so much Western thought since really the, 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 the high Middle Ages 
has tended to fix its eyes not on that remaking of creation, but on some kind of escape from creation, um, particularly on the idea of a, a disembodied heaven to which souls will go. And there's a huge amount of Plato in there and not nearly enough of actual first century Jewish and biblical thought. And so that's, that's the foundation. And actually, this, uh, in my own work, of course, a lot of this goes back to Surprised by Hope, among other books, um, where I talk about that final hope for new heavens and new earth. But if you get the goal wrong, then whatever you say about how we get there and how Jesus enables us to get there will also be wrong as a result. Right, right. And what's interesting here is that, I mean, it's, it's a principle that, you know, pervades literary criticism, namely that the questions that we bring to a text, yeah. to a large extent, de you know, determine the kinds of answers we're going to get. That's um, absolutely right. Hmm. Now, let me ask you this. I mean, just kind of as, as a follow-up to there, I mean, um, certainly, I mean, I, I studied church history when I was in seminary, and I studied the history of biblical interpretation as part of that. What place do you think that kind of study has in the life of the Church? I think it's pretty important. Um, it's not, obviously, the whole thing. If you have to do just one thing among the theological disciplines, I would say it has to be biblical study, because that will always refresh and rejuvenate everything else. But if we don't know, roughly, the story of how we got where we got, <laughs> um, then we, we may be bound to repeat some of the mistakes. And that's why, of course, people studied the early period, the fathers and so on, and the early heresies and why the creeds got written. And uh, I was in a seminary where we all had to do that quite intensively. And that g gives you a kind of sense of perspective and balance, and these were the things they hammered out to begin with. Um, the trouble is that I find in churches today, so many people, um, they may read popular Christian books about how to pray or how to witness or how to tithe or how to fast or whatever it may be, or, or Christian books about contemporary culture, but very often they have no idea of the backstory of the beliefs that they take for granted. And it's only when you look back a bit and say, wait a minute, did we have to take that turn there? Um, what were they screening out in order to do that? And what philosophical and cultural influences were they under in the 10th century or the 16th century or the 19th century? And that enables you then to get a better um, three-dimensional view of our own day and the cultural influences that we're under, which is of course, also enormously important to be self-critical. So it's not that we're getting it all right and everyone before us got it all wrong, but that uh, if we are more aware of their context and of our context, we may be able to see more clearly what the Bible itself was actually trying to say. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to start doing that work of uh, clearing out that space for hearing yeah. the grand biblical narrative. You bring up an interesting cultural point when you situate the crucifixion in its first century moment, namely that stories whose plot have a hero dying for his comrades or for his country are really far more prevalent in pagan literature than they are in Jewish literature. Yeah. How should this yeah. literary historical fact inform the way that we read the Bible? Yeah, this is fascinating because uh, I was, uh, you know, I, I, I cut my teeth on the classical sources. I did classics at school and then at college before I did theology. So I kind of had all that stuff in the background. But then 
when for a long time I was studying the Jewish sources quite intensively, um, the, the classical material got pushed a bit to the background. And it was only when I came back and when I read the big book on the resurrection, which was, I guess, 13 years ago now, um, Resurrection Son of God, that I went back and revisited a lot of the classical sources that I'd enjoyed in previous years and started to realize, and there's a book by the great German Martin Hengel, who died not that long ago, um, where he goes through all the old stories about somebody dying for other people and somebody dying in battle so that somebody else could be saved and so on. And uh, you're quite right. Most of those are ancient pagan stories, and very often they have to do with an angry god or goddess um, who, for whatever reason, has it in for the Athenians or for Agamemnon or whoever it may be, and they have to sacrifice somebody, a person sometimes, who then dies so that the god will be appeased. Now, what Martin Hengel says about that is, hey, look, um, there in the classical world, you have people talking about somebody dying for somebody else. Maybe this was God's way of preparing them to hear the message of Jesus dying for them. And I, I don't want to discount that, but I think actually it's a more negative conclusion that people were more ready to lapse into that. And we see this going on in some of the Jewish books of the time, which are kind of compromising, I would say, with pagan thought, particularly a book like Four Maccabees, written roughly around the same time as, as the time of Jesus, which uh, tells us the story of Jewish martyrs, but tells it in, in what I see as a very pagan way. And that, I think, is the problem of a sliding back into a, a paganized view of what it's all about, and then assuming that whenever the Bible says Christ died for our sins, that's what it's talking about. Whereas, in fact, of course, what Paul says is the Messiah died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And then when we say, well, hang on, what have the Scriptures got to say? It's a very different picture, and it's a, a more complicated picture, um, which is why I think people settle for the easier, more pagan version. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, let, let's talk about this here. One of the exhortations that runs throughout this book is to keep salvation rooted firmly in that long, complex yeah. biblical narrative. Yeah. And you warn us that when we don't, uh, our salvation story becomes, among other things, Platonistic, paganistic, moralistic. <laughs> so how does this careful discipline of Bible writing avoid all of those ugly isms? Well. Well, 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 yeah, it is. I mean, it's complicated, and it's a matter of gradually putting this together. And I, it was this time last year when I was just pulling the book together from lectures that I'd done already that I was struggling with how to say this reasonably simply because I was seeing all kinds of twists and turns. Mm -hmm. And I realized that if you start off with the idea that the name of the game is for your disembodied soul to go to a disembodied heaven, then, which is a platonic um, eschatology, then you will be bound to think, so what's stopping my soul going there? Well, my soul is corrupt. I've done bad things. I'm, I'm, I'm a bad human being, whatever, um, which is to treat being human as simply, is my soul virtuous or unvirtuous, which is to moralize the picture of what it means to be human. And taking that back into the Bible, it's very interesting. Since I started thinking about this, I've listened to, to and read all sorts of people writing about or speaking about Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And again and again and again, mainstream Christian tradition says, well, at the beginning, God set human beings a moral test. He set them quite a high bar. He told them what they had to do and what they hadn't to do, and they failed. They just got the moral test. They flunked the moral exam. Mm -hmm. And I come back and I read Genesis 1, and I think 
Genesis 1 does not read like a moral examination. It reads like uh, a job description, a vocation. Uh, God says, you are reflecting me, you are in my image, and you are to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and look after it. And basically the shorthand for this is that humans are called to be stewards of creation, which comes through into the Bible in terms of the royal priesthood, that humans are there to worship God on behalf of the rest of creation, and also to work in the world on behalf of the creator. And of course there are moral elements to that, very powerful and important moral elements, but if we elevate the don't do this bit, um, then we collude with medieval moralism and also actually 19th century European and American moralism, where ever since the philosopher Immanuel Kant, people have this idea of a moral code hanging like a sword of Damocles in midair, ready to come crunching down on us if we get any of it wrong. And so people naturally in our world think in terms of have human beings kept this moral code or not? And of course, keeping the moral code, being the sort of humans God wants, is really, really important. But it isn't the big issue. The big issue is, have we been worshipping and serving God in his world? And that's a bigger and more interesting thing than the moralism. Um, and then, if you reduce it simply to moralism, you say, our problem is that we're very wicked, God has to punish us, so what's going to happen? Well, actually, he punished somebody else instead. So that we then shrink the question of how do we get out of this problem into that pagan system that I mentioned before. And of course, there is a grain of truth in it. The Messiah died for our sins, but it's in accordance with the biblical vision, not in accordance with the ancient pagan vision. Mm -hmm. And in that biblical vision the sort of root of all this kind of wrongdoing is not pride, as Augustine might have us think, but idolatry. Uh, and that, yeah. again, is something that runs through this book, is that Jesus' work in the world is idol-smashing work. So yeah. how broad yeah. is that notion of idolatry in the New Testament, and why it's, is its place as the root of all kinds of evil so important in your argument? Yeah, it's, it's massive. Um, and, I mean, you notice it in one of the most famous passages about human wrongdoing, namely Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and following. And normally, if people summarize Romans 1, 18 through to 3.20, they say, basically, all have sinned. That's what it's about. But what Paul begins by saying is that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Asabia kai adikia in Greek. And it's the, the wrong worship, the worship of the wrong gods, the failure to worship the right God that leads to the adikia, the getting things wrong, and the, the making of things wrong. Um, and I think we see that again and again in throughout the Bible, really. It's there in the Psalms very clearly, and in Isaiah and all over the place, that, that the problem that Israel has had is that Israel has worshipped idols, and so has gone the route of becoming the sort of people who reflect um, money, sex, and power, etc., 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 rather than reflecting the true God into this world where money, sex, and power matter, but not that much. Um, and uh, the, the, the crucial thing is this, that when you worship that which is not God, you give away your human authority, which you have as a gift under God the Creator. Think of Genesis 1 and think of Psalm 8, that humans are made little lower than the angels to be crowned with glory and honor with all things put in subjection under their feet. In other words, humans are made to be set, set in authority over the world. Paul says, do you not know that we will judge angels? Mm -hmm. And most of us will say, no, actually, Paul, we didn't know that. <laughs> That's a very odd <laughs> idea to us. But the point is this, that we are made, 
with an authority and that when you worship an idol, you give to that idol the power which you yourself ought to be exercising in God's world. And then the idol says, thank you very much, and now you're going to do what I tell you. And so we find ourselves powerless to resist what the idols, again, whether it's money, sex, or power, or any one of a dozen or a hundred others, um, tell us to do. Um, And then the problem is not oh dear, I need punishing, so God punishes Jesus, so that's all right. The problem is I'm enslaved, I am in captivity to these idols, and their power needs to be broken. And of course, how is that power broken? It has to do with, well, where do they get that power from? Because I'm an idolater, I've given them that power. So the forgiveness of sins is the means of defeating the power of the idols, because if God forgives my sins, then the fact that in sinning I have given power to the idols, uh, that chain of, of entailment is broken. And this I see again and again and again in the New Testament. And I think particularly there's, there's a passage in John which is quite difficult, like a lot of John's Gospel is, but in John 12, when Jesus says, now is the ruler of this world cast out, and if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He's saying that he is going to win a victory on the cross as a result of which people of every sort, every nation, will, for the first time, be able to come and worship the true God um, through, through coming to the, to the foot of the cross. And so it's, this is more complicated than most Christians think of atonement. Um, but I think the complexity is a biblical complexity. And if we oversimplify, then we will slide back down into those pagan views. I'm sorry, I appreciate just rattling it all off like this. This is a big thing for any listener to take <laughs> on board. Um, but I think if you can hold even part of this in your head, then it will make sense. And here's the crunch, really. Jesus chose Passover as the moment to go to Jerusalem for the final confrontation. He knew what he was doing. He didn't choose tabernacles. He didn't choose Hanukkah. He didn't choose the Day of Atonement. You might have thought he should. He chose Passover because Passover is the day when the Israelites to this day, the, the Jewish people, commemorate the overthrow of the power, Pharaoh, that had enslaved the people of God. And once that power was overthrown through the shed blood of the Lamb, then the people were free to go to their inheritance and to worship God in the desert and so on. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about all this is that, you know, as you just noted, sin is always tied to exile and Passover is the, you know, emergence out of Egypt. And then it's celebrated later as the forerunner to the return from exile. Forgiveness always has to do with the end of exile. Let me ask you this. I mean, when we, when we Christians proclaim a forgiveness of sins that not, that's not merely individual, but has attached to it that return from exile, what do we stand to gain in our proclamation? Yeah, it's a much bigger picture. It's a, I mean, part of our difficulty is that we fail to see the world the way that the biblical writers see the world. And this is one of the reasons why a book like Revelation or a book like Daniel is written in this vivid, lurid picture language that we call apocalyptic. It's trying to jolt us into saying, stop seeing the world through the normal spectacles. Try seeing the world as the place where the Lamb has already won the victory. And there is a battle still going on, but it's a battle from a position of the basic victory having already been won. And most people in the Western world, most Christians in the Western world, 
just don't see it like that at all. They think in terms of their own private battles and will they get through and out the other end and into heaven or whatever. Um, whereas when you see it like this, you realize that your forgiveness and my forgiveness, and, and in case anyone listening thinks that I don't think forgiveness is important, let me stress, forgiveness is enormously important. Mm-hmm. The mercy and grace of God is what I live on every day. And uh, that forgiveness for me, though, is part of this much larger whole, that when Jesus comes out of the tomb on Easter morning, a whole new creation is born, and the words written over the gateway into that new creation are forgiveness of sins, because it's sins that drag you back into the old world, the world of sin and death. And the, the, the notion of forgiveness, and hence return from exile, is that you're allowed out of the world of exile, and to your real inheritance. One of the things which I think so many Christians miss in reading the Old Testament, which I think any first century Jew would regard as absolutely obvious, is the parallel between Adam and Eve in the garden and then being kicked out because of their failure to be what God wanted them to be, and then Israel in the promised land being kicked out because of their failure to be what God wanted them to be. So the story of Israel is mirroring and recapitulating the story of Adam and Eve, which means that then if what we're getting is the real rescue of God's people Israel from their exile, the whole point is this is the, the means by which Adam and Eve, in other words the whole human race, are in fact rescued from the exile of Genesis 3. Mm-hmm. And within that paradigm, I mean, when you look at death, it becomes uh, another form of exile, if you will. It's, you know, you call it the intrinsic result of sin rather than an arbitrary instrument of revenge thrown by a deity with a fragile ego. So, I mean, when when we regard death that way, what does that do theologically? Well, I think uh, we go there to 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about death as the last enemy. Um, Death is an enemy because death is saying no to the goodness of God's creation. And every human, even the most wicked, there is still something in there which is reflecting something of the goodness of God. And death says, no, we don't want this person anymore. Um, We don't want them to make a contribution to the world anymore. We don't want their smile. We don't want their prayer. We don't want their tears anymore. Mm -hmm. We'll just rub them out. And everyone who's lost someone they love, which is most of us, I guess, um, knows perfectly well that that is uh, just a horrible dark, terrible thing. And even if the person happens to have been very sick so that actually death appears as a merciful release, it's still a deep sorrow of somebody who really meant something in God's world who is no more. And then the the, the message of the cross then says, actually God has dealt with the power of death itself. And in the words of the great English poet John Donne, and death shall be no more, death thou shalt die, the death of death. One of the great English Puritans, John Owen, wrote a book on the death of death. Um, And I think so many Christians, again, fail to realize that. And they go to a funeral of a Christian friend or family member, and they think we're not really supposed to grieve because they're with the Lord, which is far better. Um, And Paul would say, no, of course you're meant to grieve. Just don't (laughs) grieve in a hopeless fashion. Grieve in a hopeful fashion. But again, the victory, the note of victory is the really important thing. And uh, that's what we should be celebrating every Easter day, of course. And that's interesting. I've not preached a whole lot of funerals, but when I have, I've tended to focus on that, that, you know, uh, when somebody dies, we're going to be sad as well, but we also have 
an instinct within us to lament and to be angry and to yeah. say yeah. this isn't how it should be. And, yeah. and it's interesting, you're absolutely right, how many people will come up to me after the service and say, I have never heard a funeral like that before. Yeah. And yeah. I think, well, I well where, where's the Bible been? I know, I know. Of <laughs> course, it, it is difficult. Uh, I haven't preached that many funerals because I've had a rather odd-shaped ministry, and I've worked a lot mm-hmm. with young people and in cathedrals and so on. You don't do so many funerals. But it's quite clear that actually most people at a funeral are not really able to take in very much of the sermon. You can, you can make a couple of points mm-hmm. and maybe pique their interest, but really the time to preach about death and what happens afterwards is in the ordinary course of preaching during the rest of the year. Oh, certainly, so, that certainly. When, <laughs> so that when it suddenly happens, then people will know um, where to turn, where, where, the, where the help is to be found. Well, honestly, these are mainly folks who have come up to me who don't spend much time in churches, sure. so they have a sure. certain expectation of what a funeral servant, sermon pardon me, sounds like. Well, at any rate, no, I, 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 want to, I want to turn to yes. a, a moment where I, I had this light bulb go on, and I thought, you know, why have I never seen this before? Uh, and this is when you were talking about uh, the Torah and the sacrificial animals in the Torah, and mm-hmm. you simply noted that what is now obvious to me, those animals have a purpose in the ceremony, but they're not being punished for anybody's sins. Exactly. So t- tell our listeners about the theological implications of that yeah. observation. This is huge, because when people discuss the meaning of the death of Jesus in the New Testament, very often what they do is collect together all the sayings in which Jesus' death is seen as a sacrifice, either as the Mm -hmm. Passover lamb or a sin offering or something like that. And they say, there you are, in the temple, the the lambs or the goats or whatever were, were brought and the worshipper laid his hands on the head of the animal, and the animal was killed, so the animal was bearing the sin and the punishment of the sin of the person. Leviticus never, ever, ever says that in the sacrificial system in the Old Testament and in subsequent Jewish discussions of the sacrificial system. Sacrificial system is about worship. It's about this animal representing the giving of one's whole self to God. The problem with the idea that you confess your sins and then the animal gets killed in your place is that when you confess your sins over an animal that animal becomes unclean and you must not and dare not offer to god in worship anything that is unclean which is why the one animal that does have sins confessed over its head is the one we call the scapegoat and on the day of atonement there are two goats and one goat gets sacrificed and the other one does not because it's had the sins confessed over its head it is driven off into the wilderness as a powerful symbol of Yahweh putting away the sins of his people but mm-hmm. uh, it is it isn't able to be killed because if you brought that animal or its blood into the sanctuary you would pollute the sanctuary and and one this is really difficult because obviously um we don't today in the western world kill animals as part of religious ritual mm-hmm. um whereas so so we're just not used to how that feels and in the ancient world everybody did it all the time and so there was a kind of instinct about what was going on um also in the old testament of course the animals, the sacrificial animals, are not killed on the altar. In some pagan rituals, the animals are killed on the altar. 
but in the ancient Israelite ritual, the animals are killed somewhere else, and then the blood is collected and brought and sprinkled on the altar mm -hmm. because the blood is the symbol of life. And the whole point is that the temple, the tabernacle in the wilderness, and then the temple, is the place where Yahweh meets with his people. He meets with his people uh, at, the, at the mercy seat, the hilasterion, the place between the cherubim where he speaks with Moses in the desert and then where he meets with his people in, in the temple. And in order that that will be a place of life and not death, then the blood, which symbolizes life, cleanses the temple, the tabernacle, the furniture, etc., to make sure that there is no smell of death about it. So anything to do with death or sin or corruption or pollution cannot be brought into the sanctuary. So it simply rules out the idea, um, which of course is very, very prevalent, that the sacrifices were about an animal being punished. It's simply a modern, probably a medieval and then later um, misunderstanding of how the whole thing worked. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It, it also reminds me, I, I don't know if you spent any time with uh, Nikos Kazantzakis' novel, The Last Temptation of Christ. I I'm, confess that I have never read that. I'm sorry. Oh, well, th there is a powerful <laughs> scene where Jesus is returning from the first temptation, the one in the wilderness that's in okay. Matthew and Luke, and uh, he actually happens upon the carcass of the scapegoat and, oh. uh, you know, has this moment of reflection on, you know, his own destiny as the one who will be sent outside the city for the sins. So it's interesting. it's interesting that that novelist, you know, gets that right where so many yeah, preachers yeah, get yeah. it wrong. <laughs> is that, that is very interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, the trouble is this, uh, as the man said, there are too many books in too little time. <laughs> uh, indeed, indeed, yes. <laughs> well, at any rate, when you're talking about the place of that grand biblical narrative and how it plays out in the canonical gospels you note both that none of the four is especially interested in how one goes to heaven and yeah. that the last statement of matthew's jesus that all authority has been given to him is an echo of the early diabolic offer to offer exactly. all authority to him again exactly. that's something that i should have noticed years ago but i didn't until i read this book yeah it's so, clearer when you put together luke 4 with matthew 28 um, uh -huh. the, the, the temptation makes it clearer there that uh, the devil is offering Jesus um, a worldwide authority. It is, it is there in Matthew, but mm -hmm. I think it's even clearer when you, when you put the whole picture together with the others. But still, sorry, go on. Mm -hmm. No, 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 that's all right. I mean, and, and this is, again, a story about this authority that the world has ceded over to diabolic forces. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, what do we miss when we miss that grand contest of authority and we settle for that? works covenant that you keep talking about in this book yeah well i think uh, i think we turn the whole human drama into simply a version of moralism mm -hmm. and dietrich bonhoeffer said that the standard the basic human temptation is to put the knowledge of good and evil ahead of the knowledge of God. And obviously he's referring to Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve grasping at the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And mm -hmm. I think we do that in spades. We think that God is really only interested in how much virtue or righteousness I have accumulated. And if I haven't got any of my own, I have to get some from somewhere else. Ah, well, maybe Jesus has got a lot, so he'll share it with me. Mm -hmm. And there are a thousand different ways of doing it that way. But that just misses out this entire dimension that humans are made to be 
the royal priesthood. And for me, one of the starting points of the reflections which caused the original sequence of lectures, which then turned into the book, was Revelation chapter 5, where the celebration in Revelation 5 is of the slaughtered lamb who by his blood has ransomed humans for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation to make them a kingdom and priests to our God. I remember being struck by that quite a long time ago and thinking, I would have expected to say, by his blood, he's ransomed people for God in order that they can go to heaven and be with him forever. Right. And it isn't. It's so that they will be reconstituted as the genuine humans who will do God's will on earth. God's will being partly, of course, in terms of um, the worship, which is uh, to be offered by the whole of creation, summed up by the humans, and partly in terms of this strange business of stewardship. And so, but the stewardship is the kingdom work, which is precisely what Jesus is articulating. Actually, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount is saying, this is how the kingdom of God comes, by people mm-hmm. being merciful, peacemaking, hungry for justice, meek, etc., etc. It doesn't come by force of arms and blowing of trumpets. It comes by people being this kind of people. You see it again when he sends out the disciples on their mission in Matthew 10, the second great discourse. He says, go and say to people, the kingdom of heaven is arriving, and what should you do? You heal lepers, you heal the sick, you you Mm -hmm. do this, you do that. You do the things which show that new creation is actually coming to birth in, in the midst. And you interpret it by saying, this is happening because Jesus is winning the victory and doing what God always intended to do, and so on. So throughout Matthew's Gospel, climaxing perhaps in that last paragraph, the so-called Great Commission, it isn't Jesus saying, all authority in heaven has been given to me, therefore come and join me because I'm going there. It says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given Mm -hmm. to me, so you go and put my authority to work on earth by making disciples and teaching them, and so on, baptizing and teaching them. Right, right. And and this is, I mean, a kind of teaching that takes so many people off guard. I uh, th- This semester, I actually uh, taught a group of freshmen your book, uh, uh, After You Believe. Oh, right. And, okay. you know, th- this idea that, you know, the New Testament has this overarching vision of vocation of which, yeah. you know, uh, your personal sins are only one fragment. You know, this this hit my freshmen like a like a ton of bricks. I mean, they said, yeah, oh, my right. gosh, there's a there's so much more here. Now, all of a sudden, all of this bible that i hadn't really paid attention to is making sense to me (laughs) yeah 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 no that that's great and i i first that was where i first really worked that idea out about the royal Mm -hmm. priesthood i mean Mm -hmm. i'd always sort of known that that was a an idea from exodus 19 which comes through to the book of revelation but it was when i was working on after you believe and was thinking through virtue theory in terms of how it changes in the New Testament from what you get in Aristotle. And for Aristotle, of course, um, the end of the whole process is eudaimonia, which means happiness or contentment or something, the genuine humanness where you just think, yes, this is who I'm meant to be. And so everything is driven towards that. And I thought, well, the New Testament doesn't say that. The New Testament says we're supposed to be the royal priesthood. So hang about, how can we be practicing the virtues of the royal priesthood in the present? And that's where the whole argument came from. And then that was in the back of my mind when I took a fresh run at the meaning of the cross and landed on Revelation 5, where it says exactly that. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is where we're going now. How does the cross do that? And then you get the Passover theme coming through uh, loud and clear, as in the book of Exodus. Very good. 
Well, I've read more than a dozen of your books. I actually didn't take the time to count up how many I've read, but this one is it has become one of my favorites as I've read this oh, one. Good. And good. here's I'm why, sure because you, you provide this wonderful 200-page exposition of Paul's letters in the volume oh. second half. So oh. I want to pose some questions that encourage our listeners to read your careful treatment of these texts and not assume that they <laughs> don't need to be read because there's a lot of material here. So Thank listeners, you. yep. that's your job. <laughs> Tom, this is your job. Tell our listeners for a moment why reading Paul and looking for new heavens and new earth like you were just talking about, rather than going to heaven, is going to yield more faithful readings. Wow, yes. Um, of course, the phrase new heavens and new earth is not a phrase that Paul himself uses. Mm-hmm. However, it's very clear from classic passages like Romans 8 and the end of Philippians chapter 3 and 1 Corinthians 15, that Paul envisages new creation, that God will do for the whole creation at the end what he did for Jesus on the first Easter. That is to say, take this physicality which is corrupt and decaying and left to itself will ultimately die and breathe into it a totally new life so that it'll be the same but entirely different. I mean, this is why it's called New Heavens and New Earth, even though actually it goes all the way back at least to Augustine to say, well, it's not a new creatio ex nihilo. It's not a new creation out of nothing. It's a creatio ex vetere. It's a creation out of the old original one. And what is new about it is that there is no, no death in it. There is no corruption, no decay. It's very hard for us to imagine that. But this is what Paul is talking about. And I think particularly at the end of, 1 Corinthians 15, and he says the same, only it's more complicated in 2 Corinthians 5, when he talks about this mortal must put on immortality. In other words, Mm. at present we are a corruptible, um, dying breed, but God has, if you like, a suit of clothes for us to put on, which will be a non-corruptible physicality. And people get very confused about this because of the mistranslations in First Corinthians 15, where <laughs> some translations say that our present body is the physical body and the future one will be the spiritual body. And actually, what those phrases mean in First Corinthians 15 is that the present body is a body animated by the ordinary human life, or if you like, the soul, the right, psuche. Right, yes. <laughs> and the future body will be a body animated by the pneuma, the spirit. So mm-hmm. what we have is a vision of this new creation, but then we say, well, wait a minute, Paul says in Philippians 1, the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So if you realize the, the complete, completed work is the total renewal of the human being, but that has already begun by the Spirit, and therefore the life of prayer, of holiness, of suffering, of witness, of work for God in the world, is part of the anticipation in the present of the fully renewed human beings that we will be in, in the future. So looking at it like this, um, just transforms everything. And I think the, the, the last phrases of Philippians chapter 3 are so important and so often misunderstood that Paul says, uh, uh, we are citizens of heaven. And people think, oh, well, that's it. We're going back there then. I've heard some mm-hmm. distinguished preachers and theologians make that mistake <laughs> quite recently. It, that's not what he means at all. He means, so from it, from heaven, we await the Savior, the Lord, the King, Jesus, who will change the body of our humiliation to be like the body of his glory. In other words, 
he won't come back to snatch us away from this world. He'll come back to bring heaven and earth together, to renew them from top to bottom, and to renew us in the middle of it. And then when you say, wait a minute, that has already begun with Easter and with the gift of the Spirit, then you realize that we are living in already the, the inauguration of the new creation. And I just think every sermon you might preach changes dramatically as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Well, and I still remember in my, my seminary Greek class, uh, the first time we took a stab at 1 Corinthians 15, which was far beyond our ability, but that's part of the point <laughs> of a Greek class. Uh, you know, when I encountered that passage, I, I was expecting, you know, Soma Fuzike, and instead uh, I got Soma Pasuke. And I, uh, I, I, I did. I asked the professor, I said, is this wrong? I mean, that... <laughs> That, yep, that's not yep, what I expect yep. to see there. And he said, uh, yep. you know, you've, you've, you've taken a step towards reading the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, th- those are difficult twists and turns, but I and others, mm-hmm. and there's plenty of good commentators have written about them, and I've added my two cents worth. Um, mm-hmm. But I, th- I think it's this, it's this larger picture which so many fail to get. And, you know, when I wrote Surprised by Hope, which is, I guess, eight years ago now, mm-hmm. I started to get letters from around the world, and especially in America, of people saying this had revolutionized the way they looked at their, their whole present life, not just their future life. Mm-hmm. And also from preachers saying, hey, I tried preaching this uh, at Eastertide in my church, and I had the elders come up to me afterwards and say, preacher, we never heard this before. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops, oh dear, it is actually in the Bible. Yes, <laughs> supposed yes. to be preaching the Bible. <laughs> well, let's turn towards Romans. What, what yep. would it sound like if you read Romans 5 through 8 in terms of the defeat of the powers? Yeah, it's massive. It's massive. Because, um, as I have argued in various places, and obviously not everyone agrees with this, but I still think it's actually, when you see it, it's quite obvious. Um, in Romans 5, you get a big picture of, from, uh, from Adam to the Messiah, which is Paul retelling the entire biblical story in a very tight, terse form. And then we say, okay, how does this actually work out? And in Romans 6 and 7 and 8, he is telling, again, the story of Israel, the the whole story of the Bible, but it's particularly the Passover story that what happens at Passover and Exodus is the children of Israel who are enslaved in Egypt, they come through the waters of the Red Sea, and as a result, the slaves are free. That's Romans 6. It's all about coming through the waters of baptism. As a result, those who are enslaved to sin are no longer enslaved and must now live a new kind of life. And then what happens is the children of Israel, of course, arrive at Mount Sinai, and they're given the law. And the law is a problem because the first thing they do is they break it, and they um, make a golden calf, when in fact what God wants to do is to set up the tabernacle so that he can come and dwell in their midst and lead them to their inheritance. So Romans 7 and the beginning of Romans 8 are a retelling of the story of what happens at Sinai and the fact that Israel, who are the bearers of the promise, are at the same time the bearers of the the curse, of the problem, of the problem of the whole human race. So Paul is telling the story of Passover, Exodus, and so on, moving on in Romans 8 to the point where the Spirit is like um, the presence of God in the pillar of cloud and fire in the desert. The Spirit is coming to dwell in the midst of the people. This is temple language or tabernacle language in order to lead us to the inheritance. And the inheritance, which corresponds to the promised land, of course, is not going to heaven, but is precisely the renewed whole creation. Mm -hmm. I've said it many times. 
that from the point of Romans, Romans 8, the whole world, the whole creation is now God's holy land. And that is what we are to inherit as fellow heirs with the Messiah. So that the whole of 6, 7, and 8 becomes a great Passover statement about how God has defeated the ultimate Pharaoh, death himself, itself, and sin itself. And it is focused on the passage, which I think is the clearest statement of penal substitution in the whole New Testament, which is Romans 8, verses 3 and 4, that God, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as, as a sin offering, condemned sin in the flesh. That is definitely penal. He condemned sin. It is mm -hmm. definitely substitutionary because that condemnation happens there. Therefore, there is no condemnation, chapter 8, verse 1, for those who are in Christ. Um, but it is a penal substitution which is part of the story of Israel focused on the Messiah rather than some kind of an ab abstract transaction. So that the powers of sin and death, which are then listed scornfully at the end of chapter 8, that um, neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, etc., 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 nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in the Messiah Jesus our Lord. Um, this is a way of saying that through this new Passover, every possible opponent to the love and power of the Creator God has been defeated, and none of mm -hmm. them can separate us from this extraordinary covenant love. Mm -hmm. Well, sticking with Romans... One of the differentiations I want you to tell our readers about, again, hopefully to get them to buy this book, because I think everyone should. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. What is the difference between a proto-Trinitarian reading of Romans and a quasi-pagan reading of Romans? <laughs> wow, yeah. Um, let, let me just say, by the way, I'm not sure if, if, uh, if this was, was clear, that the book is also now... Um, summarized in one of the online courses that I've done. You, you'll be aware of this, no doubt. This is the ntwriteonline.org. Do you know that? Do you know about these? Oh no, no, no! I wasn't aware of this. Oh, okay, okay. Well, let me tell you and your listeners in that case Very that good. there are a dozen or so courses which I've done, which are available as online courses done through the Wisconsin Center for Christian Studies. A colleague there who's pulled them together, but they basically consist of me doing short, like quarter of an hour or twenty minutes. Uh, mini lectures with then there's written material to go with etc and there's one of those courses is based on this book the day the revolution began okay. obviously in in 15 or so 15 minutes or 20 minute segments we can't do more than just touch the bases but that's what it is so it's right. org, and you'll find it all there okay. um, so anyway in romans 3 so many christians since the medieval period, have assumed that Romans 1 to 4 is about how to get justified. And of course, there is a lot about how to get justified in Romans 1 to 4, but actually you need the whole of Romans 1 to 8 to get the full picture. And if you try to make Romans 1 to 4 do all the jobs that a theology of justification ought to do, you'll find you've distorted and twisted bits of it in various uh, demonstrable ways. And particularly, this is where people will say, well, there you are, Romans 1 and 2, we're all sinners, uh, comes to the middle of chapter 3, we're all very bad sinners, so God has to punish us. Um, and then there's that very complicated bit, Romans 3, verses 24, 25, and 26, and people take the individual words and phrases, and they make some of those words and phrases say, in effect, 
that God punished Jesus um, and therefore we're okay. Now, of course, a good theologian who says that will also say that God did this because of his love, not just because of his wrath. Mm -hmm. But when you hear hymns being sung which say, and on the cross when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. I mean, I know why that says that. It comes from Isaiah 53 and so on. But if people hear this distorted version, which is basically pagan, rather than the Trinitarian version, which says God put him forth as the hilasterion, that's the Greek term, which is a rare word in the Greek, goes back to the Septuagint for the mercy seat, as I said before, in Leviticus, um, in Leviticus 16. And the mercy seat is the place where God meets with his people and meets with them in grace. And what I, what I see in this, it's a very condensed formula um, by anyone's account. It's, it's a very, Paul has sort of shoved it all together into a tight package here. Um, what I see is that over against the idolatry where people have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, Paul is saying God has put forth Jesus, and when we look at Jesus, we see the place where and the means by which we can approach and recognize the living God. And here, here Paul, I think, is very close to John, that for John, obviously, the word became flesh and tabernacled in our midst, and we gazed upon his glory. And John makes it quite clear that the glory is fully revealed when Jesus dies, revealed on the cross, so that um, it, it isn't the case of... Uh, an angry God and a loving Jesus. Now, again, there are very few preachers who would actually say that explicitly, but that is mm -hmm. clearly what many, many, many people have heard. I, I did a talk at SBL um, a few weeks ago in San Antonio about this, and somebody complained and said, uh, you're just producing a caricature. Nobody actually thinks like that. And a guy came up to me afterwards and said, listen, I teach young Christians in China, and this is what they all believe they mm. all imagine that we're talking about this wrathful god and this jesus who comes in to rescue us from uh, the wrath of god and of course there is a sense in which yes there is such a thing as wrath and, the, and jesus has rescued us from it but that isn't what paul is talking about in romans 3 and one of the things that was really a new point to me in writing this book and i've had to say in the book as you'll have noticed that i've changed my mind on this from yeah. my commentary of 13 years ago is that in Romans 5, 9, Paul says that if we are justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved through him from the wrath. And so justified by his blood is clearly a reference back to Romans 3, 24 to 26. But in that case, Romans 3, 24, 26 cannot be talking about being saved from wrath. Because if it was, then what 5.9 would be saying was, would be tautologous. It would be saying, since we're saved from the wrath, we shall be saved from the wrath. But mm -hmm. Paul is saying this is something different. This is a future thing, the wrath which is coming, as in First Thessalonians 1. And the justification which has occurred already is a completely different kind of event. God declaring that these are his covenant people, because in Jesus... God has revealed who he truly is. So when we worship the God we see in Jesus, this is, if you like, 
the solid antidote to all idolatry. Um, and this is why, of course, in some churches, cautiously and with always the risk of a different kind of idolatry, people actually look at an image of the cross or hold on to a cross, a wooden cross in their pocket or something as a reminder. This is the thing that truly speaks of the true God over against all idolatries. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. I want to dwell on that word hilasterion for a moment because that's that's yep. not a discussion I was really aware <laughs> of. Uh, what's interesting to me, and I, I want to get your, your view on this in terms of Bible translation, that mm-hmm. when you go back to 1611, you do mm-hmm. have a geographic metaphor there translating that. It's the mercy seat. Yeah, and, it's yeah. o- and it's only in, you know, more recent translations like that, you know, the English standard version is the one that I yeah. would point to here that you get the much more abstract propitiation as the yeah, translation yeah, yeah. Of, of, of Hillisterian there. So, I mean, talk to our listeners a little bit about the practice of Bible translation. How well, important goodness. is it to get the metaphors I, in place there? Yeah. It just so happens that I, I didn't know how much detail we were going to get into, and I'm not actually sitting in my study at the moment. I'm sitting oh, in, okay. a, in my... Uh, but fine, because it just so happens that I have in front of me, as well as the Greek, my own translation called the Kingdom New Testament, okay. um, which, as you know, is published by Harper, and then the King James Version. And the mm-hmm. King James Version says, um, God's, God hath set forth to be a propitiation. So I, but I think it's oh, Tyndale. It? Okay. Who, uh, but I think it's Tyndale earlier in the, 60, in, the, in the 16th as opposed to the early 17th century. I think it's Tyndale who has mercy seat. And I'm just looking back at my own, um, uh, yeah, in my own translation, I say God put Jesus forth as the place of mercy. So I am reverting to Tyndale there, really. Okay, all um, right, all right. And, uh, but, but, I mean, it is difficult because the Greek is a rare word, and it looks as though Paul is using this word not necessarily to mean what its etymological meaning might indicate from Hilaskestai and so on, which could mean to propitiate. And there's been masses and masses written about this, of course. And he's actually using it to refer to the Septuagint of Leviticus, in which it does refer, as I say, to um, this item of temple furniture. And it's in the Holy of Holies. You have the Ark of the Covenant, and the lid on the Ark of the Covenant is, with the, the, the angels at either end, is the place where God has said he will meet with his people and meet with them in grace. And the phrase mercy seat is an odd phrase because it isn't a seat in the sense that nobody's actually sitting on it. Mm-hmm. It's a seat in the, in the sense of like talking about the heart as the seat of the emotions. It just means this is where it happens. And, and right. mercy, again, is loose because it isn't just mercy. It's, it's the merciful meeting of God and his people. And that's why I say that I think what is going on here, it may well be a pre-Pauline formula. We don't know that, but it's possible. Um, what, what, what may be going on here is Paul basically quoting a formula to say um, that, that the answer to all idolatry and to the sin which flows from it is that God has acted in the Messiah and his death uh, to be the true revelation of himself, his love, his mercy, his grace, and through that means to put people right, and this is the point about justification, to, put, to make them members of the Abraham family, as in chapter 4. In other words, the family 
who are reversing and undoing the sin of Adam, which is why you can then go on into what happens in chapter 5. Sorry, Romans is, Romans is amazing. This is, uh, and mm-hmm. trying to talk about it on the phone is, is, is a wonderful <laughs> challenge. It's rather like trying to whistle all the tunes in Beethoven 5 in, in short order. You know, it's, you're just not going to get the full effect, but go and listen to the record and you'll see. <laughs> yes, very good, very good. I, I want to turn to the end of the book. One ethical warning that you issue uh, is that in the course of, I would say, reclaiming the conviction that Christ's suffering is fulfilled in our own, which is, which is yeah. of course, straight out of St. Paul, you yeah, still yeah, insist yeah. that we, the faithful, should not be the ones increasing other people's suffering. So take a moment to tell our listeners why that distinction is so important. Uh, sorry, I don't quite understand, and I haven't actually got that book in... Uh, maybe I do in front of me, but but just just run that by me again. Cause oh, that's is, all right. That's all right. Yep. So, I mean, you say on one hand, it's undeniable that, you know, St. Paul says that our own suffering is, in a sense, a continuation and even a fulfillment of Christ's suffering. Yeah. On yeah, the yeah. other hand, you caution us and you exhort us that we Christians should not be the ones who increase uh, other people's suffering. Yeah. That distinction yeah, think... is so important. Tell our listeners why. Yes. Well, I mean, I've seen this sadly in in the church where, um, you know, young people sign on for working in the church and um, then they find it's really difficult and they aren't being paid enough and they're living in a, a, an unpleasant place. And then their elders and betters will sometimes say to them, and I've heard this too often, um, oh, well, it's good for you. We're told to suffer. And so put up with it and it'll, it'll be good for you and it'll be, you know, part of your virtuous life, etc. And the church can just, in other words, push people into this as though that's what you ought, ought to be doing. And it seems to me suffering will find us all. Um, uh, I'm just looking for the page here. Suffering will uh, find us all. Uh, sorry? 373. 373. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Suffering will find us all whether we, whether we want it or not. Oh, yes, yes, here we are, here we are. Um, th- this is the word of caution. Um, and I'm talking about this people having a, a tough time in college or whatever, the suffering is good mm-hmm. for you, it'll toughen you up, prepare you for real life in active ministry. Um, and uh, it seems to me, actually, when Jesus is talking about um, the people through whom suffering comes in Matthew 18, and I, th- I see I quote this, um, he warns precisely, woe to those through whom suffering comes. Yep. So that <laughs> it's basically the, the church, and the church has a bad track record of doing this with young people, with women. Um, you know, many, many women have been told, um, yes, now that your husband's a pastor, of course, you won't expect to see him except for half an hour on Saturday afternoons if you're lucky, because he's doing God's work, and you must just put up with that. And the pastor himself, maybe in the days when it was always a man, may be told, uh, of course, the church work comes first, and your family will have to understand and put up with that. And that has been the cause of many tragedies, many marital um, disasters, etc., etc., in clergy families. And I think we are starting to be aware of that, but each generation has to see that danger um, and, and ward it off and say, absolutely no, we, we, there will be suffering of whatever sort. If you're faithful to the gospel, that is bound to be the case. It may be internal, other people may not see it, you may be suffering temptations or depression or whatever it may be, or there may be, as there is for many, many, I mean, think, we're having this argument, I'm sitting in a comfortable house in Scotland and you're in America, but imagine if we were Christians in Aleppo or in um, parts of Baghdad or wherever. Um, there are people who are suffering 
extraordinary things at the moment for the name of Jesus. There are people who've been beheaded because they're Christians on the on the shore of Libya within the last few years, and 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 terrible things happening in southern Sudan and Ethiopia and places where I have friends working. Um, so suffering happens to the church and. You see, every generation has to be prepared for that, but at the same time, not to collude, not to use that as an excuse for laziness in how we go about our church policies. Mm-hmm. Well, here at the end of our interview, I want to be, return to the beginning of the book, where you make a strong claim that theology is not optional for the church, <laughs> and that yeah. the aim of theology should never be to replace love, but to direct love rightly. So I'm asking you here as one Christian professor to another, why do we even need to say that? It's very difficult. In my country and in yours, I think there is a kind of an anti-intellectualism. Um, oddly, I think particularly in Britain, I think America still does have a tradition of, of education and self-improvement of people who want to learn more. But often they want to learn more just within, a, within the framework they already know. They want to fill in the gaps in the paradigm they already have. Whereas part of the point of theology isn't just to do that, but is actually constantly to be pushing towards a bigger and more biblical paradigm, which we all need to do all the time. Um, and, you know, somebody, somebody said to me in an interview I did recently, um, does all this stuff really matter? After all, isn't it enough if, if somebody on their deathbed says, what must I do to be saved? Can you not just say, believe in Jesus, he died for you? And I say, absolutely, yes, precisely. Um, that's one of the things you would say. But unless the church is doing theology seriously, then each generation will be tempted to drift away from or distort the gospel in one way or another, particularly by making it more comfortable within their particular culture. And since our cultures are very contested at the moment, yours even more than mine, (laughs) being comfortable within one culture means standing over against another in your culture wars and so on. But we're tempted to read the whole Bible in the light of our cultural situations and battles instead of actually being joggled out of that and told, no, lift up your eyes, there's a different thing going on. The image I've often used, um, (laughs) having worked in cathedrals which need to put up scaffolding to sort out the ancient stonework and so on, is that... Being a theologian is like um, doing the scaffolding work, that uh, it, it isn't actually necessarily the heart of what the church is about. But unless you do the scaffolding work every few years and sort out the stonework and the drains and the guttering and all the rest of it, and make sure the roof isn't leaking, then the inside of the building is going to suffer pretty soon as a result. And so I see it as a constant task that each generation has to be wrestling with these texts afresh. Very good. Well, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about the cross, the Bible, the mission of the faithful, or whatever else as we finish up here? (laughs) Goodness, goodness. Well, do you know, we're in the season of Advent at the moment, and and looking ahead to Christmas in less than three weeks now, um, and it seems to me one of the themes which is there in... Um, the the whole Bible, but particularly obviously in the Gospels, is the coming of the King. And as I'm I'm about to try to write a little homily on Matthew later on, either tonight or tomorrow. There's my clock just striking seven in the background. It's time for my supper. Um, and I when I think about Matthew, I think about coronation. I think about um, that great opening where, which goes from Abraham through David to the exile to the Messiah. Jesus is the Davidic King who fulfills the promise to Abraham in 
order to rescue his people from their sins and hence undo the exile of Israel and of the world. And the end of Matthew's Gospel is about Jesus having won the victory on the cross, now being crowned as king of the world. And I would love it if people this Christmas time, when they think about Jesus coming to be king, won't just think of this as Jesus being king um, above the sky somewhere, pie in the sky when you die. But what does it mean that because of the cross, Jesus has won the victory over the powers of evil, which still claim the powers of evil still swagger around the world and pretend that they're in charge. What does it look like when Jesus' followers take him seriously and say, no, he is in charge, and here in the Sermon on the Mount we see the cross-shaped ministry of the people of God. Now, there's a Christmas challenge for me as well as for everyone else. Tom Wright, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you very much. Really good to talk to you again. Yes. Listeners, thank you for downloading. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.